0: Good morning everyone, what a wonderful time of worship, especially having the children playing so beautifully amongst us. I think we should do that every week, Matt, that was wonderful. Let's give them a round of applause, well done. I'm going to do my best to honor the mandate of preaching no longer than 30 minutes this morning, so I will jump straight into it. We are carrying on with our series through the book of Mark. And we've seen at the end of chapter eight that Mark's taken a seismic shift in the direction of the narrative. Up until that point, he was mainly focusing on the person of Jesus and the slow understanding of the disciples to see who he was, which comes to a head on a boat when Peter finally says, you are the Christ, the Son of God. And from that moment, Jesus starts to teach in a different way and He starts to tell them that uh, a mission is going to end with Him dying on a cross. And it's a message that's difficult for the disciples to receive. They, they misunderstand it and you're going to see in the text today, this is the second time Jesus delivers the exact same message. He's going to tell them again that He is going to die on a cross and be raised again the disciples are going to misunderstand him again. And the last time that happened, Jesus turned it into a discipleship moment and he taught them about um, uh, carrying your cross and living sacrificially. But today he's going to take that one step further and talk about what is the outcome of living that way. So there's another discipleship moment that we're going to focus on in the text today. The title of the sermon is The Great Christian. And I want to ask you a question that I want you to think about a little bit because I think if you answer it too quickly, you might uh, get it wrong. And the question is, are you a great Christian? I think it's an awkward question. And I'm already hearing no's jumping out straight away. And I agree, I think think if we can have a think that we are great, that's probably quite an arrogant response to consider yourself a great Christian. But I do wonder if we shouldn't at least desire to be great. I wonder if in lacking that desire, we are not missing something about following Christ well. Today, the text will take us into this question in a deeper way. And my prayer is that you will be motivated to aspire to greatness in God's kingdom. Let's read from verse 30 Jesus is trying to get away from the crowds and the reason he's trying to do that is because the message he's teaching at the moment is just for the disciples. He's telling them once again what his mission is. This is the second time he teaches them that clearly, um, he, he, he teaches them clearly that he will be killed and that he will rise again. They are still dull to this message. They can't understand it. It makes no sense to them. They know they are heading towards Jerusalem. Jesus has been kind of uh, circling Jerusalem, staying in outward cities, but Jerusalem is the capital. Jerusalem is the main event, and the disciples are fully expecting that when Jesus gets to Jerusalem, he's going to perform the same miracles he's performed elsewhere, and he's going to be received as king. He's going to be made king of Jerusalem and Israel, and Israel's going to become the greatest nation on earth again. So when Jesus says, I'm going to die, it makes no sense to them. They can't receive it. And the last time someone challenged him on it, there was quite a strong reaction. So I'm not surprised they were too scared to ask him. Because the last time he says, I'm going to die on a cross, Peter says, far be it from you that that should happen to you. And Jesus calls Peter Satan. So this time when Jesus says, I'm going to die on a cross, they get confused, but they quietly keep that to themselves. This is not the time to press Jesus on this or ask him about this. We are worried Jesus might say something harsh to us as well. And they are walking on a road and a discussion breaks out amongst them about who's going to be the greatest. And I'm not surprised this discussion starts because you've got to remember what has just happened is Jesus has taken three up onto the the mountain. They've experienced something wonderful And and they're not meant to tell people about it, but it's almost impossible not to tell people about it because you're one of the only three people that got to see this. And that makes you feel kind of special. So I imagine them walking on the road, something like this, James going, you know, when we get to Jerusalem and Jesus becomes king, even though he just said he's gonna die, um, I wonder which one of us three is gonna be the one sitting next to him. And I imagine Peter going, well, I think it's gonna be me because I'm the only one brave enough to say stuff in important moments. And then John saying, but you said one of the dumbest things I've ever heard when you said, let's build tents for these uh, spirit beings in front of us and Jesus in his glorified uh, body. Um, and the rest of the disciples are probably listening to this, get, feeling quite envious and jealous. Why has Jesus separated three of us from the rest? And maybe they are better than us. And what do I need to do to to jockey for position. This is the shocking thing here. Jesus is going to Jerusalem to die, and the disciples are jockeying for position on who's going to be sitting next to him, not realizing what it means to drink from his cup yet. And Jesus overhears this discussion, this sibling rivalry, and when they get to Capernaum, he brings it up. And the disciples are immediately embarrassed to share what they've been talking about. I don't know if you've ever been in a conversation that has embarrassed you, where while it was happening, you're wondering, geez, I can't believe I'm even saying this. Am I really this immature still? And then someone might come back to you afterwards and say, what were you talking about? And it's quite embarrassing to, I mean, I can put my hand up for this. I've played board games as an adult, acted like a child, and wanted to forget about the moment and then someone brings it up again and goes, Mark, why are you such a sore loser? Um, it's one of those kinds of conversations that's happened to these disciples now. They know or they believe it's wrong to be talking about who's the greatest. Because when Jesus asks them about it, they don't want to say anything. They are silent. And he turns it into a discipleship moment. He turns it into a teaching moment. He takes on the position of teacher. He sits down and he beckons and he calls them to sit. And he wants to teach them something very important. The theme of this text is greatness. And Jesus is going to teach on greatness now. And it's very important what he says to them. And I want you to notice that the first point this morning might be a bit different to what you're expecting. But Jesus is not scolding them for wanting to be great. He's not saying you shouldn't be talking about this or you shouldn't want to do that. He actually says, if you would be great. So if you want to be great, this is how it works. He's saying it's good to be great, but the way it works is different in my kingdom to the way that it works in the world. So I'm gonna have to show you a few things here so that you can learn how to be great in God's kingdom. I think this is an important point for us to grasp, because pride is a tricky thing. It makes us think our ambitions are wrong in and of themselves. Often the ambition is good, while the underlying motive that drives the ambition can be selfish and must be addressed, as is the case here with the disciples. It would be wrong to step away from that ambition completely as a way of dealing with your pride, which is often what we do. I often hear people say things like, Mark, I can't share that testimony of what God did for me because I'm worried I'm gonna become proud about sharing it. So we, we don't give God glory for stuff that God does because we're worried about what people might think of us as we share it, and we're worried that we ourselves might become prideful. And we are aware of something within us. We are aware that within us we do have a tendency to take glory that belongs to God, and so we're nervous of that, and so we avoid doing the things we maybe should do, but we don't realize that not sharing is also a form of pride. False humility... When humility is false, it's a worse form of pride because it's just pride in hiding. If you're thinking this morning, it's not a good thing to be ambitious in God's kingdom or to want to be a great Christian, I want to suggest to you that the very first point for you this morning is that it is good to be great. I recently did a job review with Matt and the topic of ambition came up and I sheepishly admitted I have an ambition to lead. It's a bit awkward because he's the leader and I'm going, I have an ambition to lead. Uh, But I'm wrestling with it. I know God's called me to this position at SBC. I can see aspects where he's using me. But I'm worried that something in me is reaching out for more than God has called me to. And it was such a good discussion where Matt's helped me so much. His first response to that ambition wasn't to say, no, that's wrong. You shouldn't want that. It was actually, that ambition's a good thing. Timing's important. We can't control timing and we need to trust God with that. But I left that conversation encouraged that just because I have an ambition to lead doesn't mean that that ambition is wrong or evil. I know God's got me where he wants me now and I've got a lot to learn and I'm probably gonna be here for a long time. So in case you think I'm trying to get out of here, uh, I think you're gonna be stuck with me for quite a while longer. Jesus is doing something similar with the disciples here. They are talking about being great. Then they're embarrassed about it. But Jesus doesn't say you shouldn't be doing that. He says, come, let's sit and talk about this. This is important. This is a discipleship moment for you. This is how greatness comes. The way to greatness is different to what you're going to think it is. Do you have a desire to do something of significance for God? Good. Too many of us are living our Christian lives, burying the things God has given to us because we're afraid of what might happen if we actually use them for Him. Doing nothing for Him as a form of humility is not humility at all, friends. Fear of failure is a form of pride. Take it from someone who's afraid to fail because I'm too proud. It's good to be great, especially when that greatness brings God glory. But the way to greatness is a way few of us can walk. The first thing Jesus teaches them about being great in his kingdom is that uh, if you are going to be great, you are going to have to face humiliation. He says in this text over here, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all. Last of all. Last of all involves being humiliated in some way. If you're going to be great in this kingdom, in some way humiliation is coming to you. I've experienced it in preaching. Joey mentioned this last week. Um, He said the first time he preached, God was with him. Uh, He was filled with the Spirit, God used him. And then the second time he preached, he got a little bit too cocky and thought it was about him and he could do it. And it was quite an embarrassing uh, thing for him and I can 100% relate. My preaching journey goes like this. I had a few opportunities to preach in my late 20s here at this church. They went quite well. I got a bit proud about that and then I remember having a couple in a row. It wasn't just one because you can write one off <laughs> but I had a couple in a row where what Joey said last week where you, you, that's how I felt. I wanted to just hide. And eventually, I'll never forget the moment. It happened in the parking lot over there. Matt Francis coming up to me and saying, Mark, uh, I need someone to preach this Sunday. It was a Wednesday. Are you uh, up for it? And I'd never said no before. And that was the first time. And I didn't preach again for uh, six or seven years. I didn't have the guts to say yes. On the back of multiple failure, the way I perceived it to be failure, when, when Matt offered me the opportunity to preach, I said no, and I didn't pick, go behind the pulpit again for another five or six years. I felt humiliated. There was a, a time of working through that before the Lord. Is this something I'm trying to do that isn't from you, and, or is this from you, and when is the right time? And again, when I finally got back behind the pulpit, it was a massive step of faith. You can imagine the fear. When you've benched yourself for seven years, And I still remember, I wasn't even going to preach here. I told myself, you're not going to preach at Sterling. This was the place of failure. I had an opportunity to preach at another church. And uh, I went to that church, and um, it was Gnubi Baptist. And I thought, these poor guys don't know what they're in for over here. This guy hasn't preached in seven years. He was no good the last three or four times he did it and I still remember sitting with the text for 12 hours in one day. I started at 7 o'clock in the morning. I finished at 7 o'clock at night, and I didn't write one point. For 12 hours, I sat, read, researched, and prayed, and I couldn't write one point because of fear. And Anita comes to me after 12 hours of prepping for the sermon and she says, how far are you? I go, I'm nowhere. I'm ready to give up. I'm ready to call Mark Merrill and say, buddy, I can't do it. It's Thursday. We're in trouble here. You've still got time, maybe. And I came to church here the next day just to do some admin at the office and bumped into someone and that person said to me, Mark, you know when you preached all those years ago? I mean, we were talking a long time. God spoke to me through you that day. And it was the encouragement I needed, the reminder in that moment God is saying to me, I'm with you. Get back behind there. If you're going to become better at something, you are going to face uh, the humiliation aspect of failing in that thing. I found it in eldership. I benched myself, even as an elder. Being an elder has been a humiliating experience at times. And I benched myself for nine months, going through a period of humiliation I could not carry on as an elder as I was. And coming out of that nine months later, I remember writing a letter to the elders. They were worried I wasn't going to come back. And I wrote this letter and I said, I'm coming back better. I'm coming back stronger than I was before. If you're going to be great you're going to have to overcome humiliation. You're going to have to become last of all in some ways. But when you are going through that, when you have to deal with humiliation, when God brings that into your life, rejoice. He's training you for promotion in His kingdom. The second thing Jesus says to them is that they must be servants of all. So greatness involves serving And this morning you come to church and you're enjoying God's presence, but I want to point out some things you might be unaware of. Someone opened up here this morning. It wasn't me. Someone uh, practiced this worship set for quite a long time before they delivered it to you this morning. Someone worked on the sound. Someone's uh, worked on the visuals. Someone's worked on setting up registration and someone's going to close up everything at the end. Someone planned for these... uh, 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 instruments to be here and someone's going to be the last to leave. All of these people are volunteers doing this so that you have an opportunity to enjoy Jesus this morning. You don't know who they are. They're doing it for you. Greatness involves serving others. Even this morning you're benefiting from that. The men and women I admire the most love Jesus. They serve Him with all their heart, and they show that by serving others. And great leaders have to do it more than anyone else. I remember seeing a leader leave a holiday with his family to sort out an issue. It was late at night. Sort out an issue in our church that needed to get sorted out, and no one else wanted to step up to do it because the work was too dirty. And through tears, this leader had to pray through it and make the decision to leave the family, leave the holiday, come and do the thing that needed to get done at our church for you and for me. A great leader serves when others don't even know that they're doing it. We're part of an organization called Advance, and I've seen such humble servant leadership from our Advance leaders especially during our time of church crisis. We've had people who've left a crisis in their own church that was hitting the newspapers in Cape Town. They've flown here to sort out an issue on our side. And then the plane gets grounded in PE because of bad weather. You don't want to fly into East London on bad weather. So the, the plane gets grounded in PE in bad weather. We have a meeting that night at seven o'clock. It's... 3 o'clock in the afternoon, the plane's grounded in that side in PE and I've seen another leader within advance at a moment's notice jump in a car, take this other advance leader three hours to our church to have a meeting and drive home three hours later when that uh, meeting ended at about 9 o'clock, getting home 12 o'clock at night with your, your own family. Moment's notice. You don't know that that happened but this movement has leaders that are willing to serve you at great cost and sacrifice to themselves. If you want to be great in God's kingdom, you're going to have to learn how to be a servant of all. The next thing Jesus does to show them greatness is he takes a child. And I think it's quite um, apt that our children are amongst us in the service this morning. And Jesus takes a child and he, he makes a child sit in front of them as a visual example of greatness. And he's saying, you need to be childlike if you want to be great. What is a child like? A child is not self-sufficient. A child is completely dependent. Your children today are dependent on you to feed them. They're not thinking about that. You're thinking about that. They're dependent on you to provide for them. They're not thinking about that. You're thinking about that. And the believer who wants to be great must learn to be childlike, not self-sufficient, but dependent on God. They're also not um, self-concerned. So they're not so concerned about themselves that they're too embarrassed to run up here and pick up things and shake and make noise during worship. But when you and I have to do something for God, we often think, what is someone going to think about me if I go and do something now? What if I mess up? Children don't do that. They see an opportunity to jump up and go and do something and they go and do it. If you want to be great in God's kingdom, you are going to have to push a bit faster. You're going to have to be childlike. And I want to say something. Jesus also says, and you receive them. That's important. So it's not just you are childlike, but you receive children. And we are blessed to be at a church that values children. For as long as I can remember, and I've been here since the mid-90s, this church is, uh, one of the graces to this church has been the gift of caring about the next generation. We put money into that. We call people to work in that area, and we are blessed to have great people working in this area of children's ministry in our church. I'm grateful for that. When I read Scripture today, today's Scripture, I'm going, we're on the right track. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. It's good to be a part of a church that values children, that ministers to children. It seems like that's the end of the teaching when we move into the next part where John speaks up. Peter's had his turn to say something dumb. Now John's going to say something equally silly. So John's in no better shape as one of the big three to say, I'm ready to sit next to to Jesus at his throne. But what's interesting is we're not actually moving away from the theme of greatness at all in this text. But John interjects at this point and he says something quite interesting. And he says, teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. This is ironic because the disciples just failed at casting out a demon. They they literally just couldn't do it. And now there's someone who is doing it and he's doing it in Jesus' name and the demon's leaving. That means this person is a brother and he's doing it for the right reasons. If you try and get involved in this area, and you're you're not a believer, what we see in the New Testament when the sons of Sceva try and do uh, deliverance on someone because Paul does it, they say, demon, get out in the name of Jesus whom Paul preaches, and the demon says, Jesus I know, Paul I know, who are you? And the demon beats them up. So, The fact that we've got someone here going, get out in Jesus' name and the demon leaves implies that we know nothing about him, but it implies that this is a brother. He's not following the disciples. He's not walking with them, but he is on their side. And that's what Jesus tries to show them. If you're going to be great, you're going to have to be free from rivalry. Jesus says, do not stop him. No one who does a mighty work in my name will be able to soon afterwards to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. If you want to be great, John, disciples, you've got to be free from rivalry. You've got rivalry within you. You're busy rivaling against each other. Not only are you rivaling against each other, you're also rivaling against other people out there. Stop doing that. If he's not against you, he's for you. The great Christian is free from rivalry. And the next uh, part is also interesting. Jesus says, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, straight after they've spoken about stopping this believer from um, doing ministry, Jesus says, whoever uh, causes an offense in those who believe in me. And when he says little ones, it actually means new believers. It's not just um, young in age, it's young in faith. And he's warning them, he says, your rivalry, especially with brothers, it can cause offense. It can cause offense. And if you are hurting someone who believes in me, you run a risk of suffering great damage. Not losing your salvation, but great damage to your faith. The great Christian avoids hurting others. That's a tough one. We do that very easily. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. But if it's difficult to um, not hurt others, it's even more difficult to not sin towards ourselves. And the next part, the great Christian takes seriously any hindrance to godliness in their own lives. So Jesus then moves off hurting others, and he speaks about hurting yourself, and he says, if, you, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better to have one hand. If your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better to have one foot. If your eye causes you to sin, take it out. It's better to have one eye. So some of the scariest verses, I remember reading this as a teenager going, I'm not going to apply this literally. I'm pretty sure it doesn't mean what it says. This is what, and it doesn't mean what it says literally, because the thing is, even if you did that, if you cut your hands, your feet, and your eyes out, you're still sinful. Your heart is your problem. We would just have a bunch of maimed people sitting here, hoping that they're not causing sin through their their body uh, parts, but it doesn't work that way. But what is happening is this is symbolization. So this is how I look at this today, and it helps me. The hand symbolizes what I do. The foot symbolizes where I go. The eye symbolizes what I see. And the great Christian is diligent to cut off areas that cause issue in what they do, in where they go, and what they let their eyes look at. They are diligent to cut out any areas in those uh, spaces that will lead them into sin. Taken a group of guys through a a course on getting free from pornography and the amount of work they had to do to cut off avenues to view with their eyes that they would go to, the amount of money that they will spend, the amount of uh, changing uh, what's going on on their devices and their access to it. If you're going to be serious against sin, you are going to cut off the avenue so that you can be free. The great Christian is serious about the hindrance to godliness. My last point this morning, I'm going to move really fast because we're at nine. Jesus talks about salty, being salty. And I don't mean salty in the negative sense. We like to use the word salty today to say, oh, that person's salty because they're, they're being, um, uh, actually, I can't even think why. We, it's when someone is bitter. We say, are they salty? But Jesus says he wants you to be salty. And he says, this is interesting, everyone will be salted with fire. (laughs) And it is a weird one. I'm glad that one of the kids is wondering what that means. (laughs) And everyone will be salted with fire. Jesus has just been speaking about dealing with sin. Jesus has just been speaking about causing offense. Jesus has just been speaking about all these aspects of living the Christian life that can be difficult to overcome, humiliation, serving. And now he says everyone will be salted with fire. We are going to face trials and difficulties in this lifetime. But as we do that, here's the encouragement for you, believer. God is salting you. You are better at the end of that. It is improving you. It says, salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? He's answered it in the first part. You make it salty again by testing it through fire. Can you lose your salt-like character as a believer? I think you can. I think you can regress. I think you can move backwards. I think you can become bland and ineffective. But God is not done with anyone. You can be salted again. How will you be made salty again? Everyone is salted with fire. Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. He closes off with this message of um, unity. A salty Christian is at peace with everyone around him. Have peace with one another. And this morning, I want to ask you two questions as we apply. The first question is, Do you desire to be great in God's kingdom? If you carry that desire, don't presume it to be evil. It's not. May it drive you to attempt things for God and live for Him passionately with great determination. If you don't harbor the ambition to be great in God's kingdom, where does your ambition lie? We are all ambitious in one way or another. Why not be ambitious for God? And second question for you this morning is, the way to greatness in God's kingdom is difficult to walk. It's the road less traveled, few get far. Which areas of greatness covered in Jesus' discipleship masterclass are needing to be sanctified in you? It may be all of them. Are you facing some form of humiliation, trying to follow what God has told you to do? Are you willing to sacrifice and face inconvenience in serving others? Are you too self-sufficient this morning? Too self-conscious to be childlike? Does God need to do a work in your heart in any or all of those areas? What about rivalry or sin? Maybe you're being salted with a fiery trial right now. Maybe you need to realize this morning that God is salting you through that. I want to close with a quote It's a quote I've often, it's famous, you'll know it, I've wrestled with it, I haven't been sure I agree until this morning. But in the context of this sermon, this quote makes far more sense to me than it ever did before. People think this is a quote by Nelson Mandela, it's not. It's a quote by a lady called Marion Williamson, and it says this, Our deepest fear is not that we are inadequate, our deepest fear is that we are powerful beyond measure. It is our light, not our darkness, that most frightens us. We ask ourselves, who am I to be brilliant, gorgeous, talented, fabulous? Actually, who are you not to be? You are a child of God. Your playing small doesn't serve the world. There's nothing enlightened about shrinking so that other people won't feel insecure around you. We are all meant to shine as children do. Let's pray. Father, this morning we are considering greatness in your kingdom. And my prayer is, Lord, that you would touch hearts and motivate people to follow you with all of their heart. And the things that you are telling them to do for you, Lord, that they would not back down from that or shy away from that, For false reasons. Lord, this morning I pray that we wouldn't be afraid to succeed for you even. I'm just going to allow a moment of quietness. I really want you to think about the things God is saying to you this morning, and maybe He said it to you in the past. But there's things we all should be doing or could be doing for Him that we Tend to put ourselves on the sidelines for the wrong reasons. And I just want to give you a moment to think about that and let the Holy Spirit speak to you. Lord, our prayer this morning as a church is that you would get glory. From our lives. Help us to get off the sidelines, Lord. May we be filled with your spirit. May we be ready to respond to you, to put our hands up, to do the things you're asking us to do. And may you get all the glory as we live and serve you. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, I've gone over time, tried my best. Um, We're going to close the service there. Um, You're welcome to hang around under the tent. The next service is only starting at 10 o'clock, but I hope you enjoy the rest of your Sunday, and we'll see you Christmas Day or Christmas Eve. Cheers.